everyone, and welcome back to the Alpine Start Podcast. We are overjoyed to have you with us again. Although, I should probably stop saying we are happy to have you because the podcast team consists of me, myself, and I. Well, and today's wonderful guest, but more on that in a minute. Things in Chamonix have been going really well lately. I feel like I'm home, and I continue to be so grateful to everyone who's made it so easy to be here. Training has been feeling really good, but it's nice because running may be feeling good and training may be progressing well, but it's also leaving me really excited for creativity and other things outside of training. I've admittedly had less time to do key sessions for Zegama as I haven't been running a ton up until the last few weeks, but I've squeezed in a few really nice workouts. I found a hill that I'll be using for my favorite seven minute intervals all summer. I put in a few tempo runs and one shorter hill sprint stay with Meg. I have one more week of big training before I will taper off a little bit before Seigama on the 27th and 29th of May. It has been really nice to get out with Meg on the trails, though it may be a bit dangerous because it feels like every time we finish back at the house, I have to go write down 10 reflections, business ventures, ideas, etc. So feel free to continue taking bets on how long before she gets tired of running with me. If you like small talk while running, you would not like running with us. It also feels like it would be incredibly disingenuous to not address how heavy things have felt at some times lately. Though I think we're all realizing that that probably isn't going to go away. It seems like there's always something, but I hope that there always being something that we could be sad about means there's always a reason to fight for a better world. This week, I know I personally struggled to reconcile the possible rights and autonomy of women in our country being stripped with the protection of freedoms that lead to things like the senseless death of a shining light on the gravel scene. Mo Wilson. My condolences go out to anyone listening who is grieving loss and reflecting on the beautiful lives of lost loved ones. Anyways, I wanted to give that a brief moment of pause, but with that, we will continue on with our intro. Training has been feeling good, running has been feeling insightful, and I have continued to be the picture of beauty and grace. Totally kidding. I have continued to be the prime example of the hot mess express. Not to toot my own horn, but after taking a wrong turn and turning a two-hour run into a four-hour run the other day, I stumbled back into town, surely looking very sweaty and very disheveled. Somehow, I convinced a very nice British gentleman to buy me a case of San Pellegrino, since I quote, clearly frequently dehydrate myself. He was more than happy to do so, which I was more than grateful for. But it's also worth noting that sparkling water here is maybe a tenth of the price that it is back home. There was another fun moment where I found myself incredulous with how I was supposed to climb 5,200 meters over the course of a marathon at Zegama. That meant that for my long run this weekend, I was aiming for 3,800 meters or 12,000, not 1,200, 12,000 feet of climbing on my four-hour long run. As I lay in bed thinking about it the night previous, it simply seemed absurd. Luckily, upon further examination of the website, we came to the conclusion that we had been reading the website wrong, and the 5,000-meter number was the combined ascent and descent. Thank goodness, both for the race and for my legs after this weekend's long run. And then, yesterday, while editing this podcast at the cafe, I couldn't help from letting out a few very audible laughs. As I was leaving, a man came up to 
to me and said, well, your boyfriend must be pretty special, which got me thinking that A, unsolicited comments can at times be the best, and B, thank you, sir, but no, just some very special running friends who never fail to put a smile on my face. Anyways, I thought that instance of public embarrassment may be worth mentioning because it speaks appropriately to the goodness, honesty, and humor in today's episode. So without further ado, let me introduce today's guest, Abby Levine. Abby was a D1 distance runner at Princeton NCU Boulder, turned pro triathlete, turned pro runner for Adidas Terex, turned free agent. And I mean free agent in all the best ways possible because I have unwavering belief that if Abby wanted a sponsor right now, she absolutely could find one. But while she is incredibly fast, she is also just an incredible human with a lot of very, very wonderful insights on life. She also works for Gaia GPS and Outside Inc., has her own podcast, Outspoken, with co-hosts and friends, and is the picture of integrating creative lives and careers with running and sport. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Abby in more ways than one, not least being her honesty and insight in this episode as we talk about collegiate running culture, the competitive mindset, what it means to make running your profession, and the existential questions we ask ourselves that seem fairly universal. I hope you enjoy, and we'll see you next week on the Alpine Start Podcast. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Abby Levine. Hello, how are you? Thank you so much for taking some time to do this, especially in the middle of the day. I'm sure it's not the most convenient, so. Oh no, this is great. It's Friday. I'm so over the work week. (laughs) I am delighted to not be working right now. (laughs) Perfect. So are you back in Boulder, or are you still back east? No, I'm back in Boulder, for better or for worse. It's so windy here. Oh my god. It's been so crazy. Uh, Especially in Summit. We have never had this issue in the spring where it's like gale force winds every day. But like I'll wake up and check the weather and it's like gusting to 90 miles an hour. And I'm like, I am not going to go run and just get swept off the ground into some like wind tunnel. Well, skiing is even worse. And like Breckenridge already gets pretty windy, I feel like, on like a normal day. Mm -hmm. Like it's cold over there. Does it make the running a bit hard down in Boulder? it's annoying but like it's not like I'm trying to run I'm not like in a road racing yeah. season right now like I'd be really annoyed probably if I was like trying to hit like mile repeats on a track but I'm just like running on the trail so I don't really care the issue is that it keeps me up at night it's like oh, just so loud. rattles against the windows this is my little studio and I'm like right next to Sunitas so I'm in the first row of houses before mm-hmm. the canyon before Sunshine Canyon so the wind just comes down the canyon and hits my window that's brutal I will say though I'm a little bit jealous of all of the Boulder people because today I drove down with a friend and we ran right off to the right of I-70 when you come onto the front range. I think it's uh I don't even maybe like Davidson Mesa or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was so nice. Like the trails were just completely dry. It was totally. dirt. It was sunny. We were like, oh my gosh, this is heaven. Yeah, I guess by this point in the year you're like ready for dry trails. I'm always yeah. jealous of you guys in the winter with your snowy trails. I'm like, oh. <laughs> It's too sunny and dry in Boulder. It, like, bums me out. In the middle of winter, it's nice. It's just that this time of year, it's the weird in-between where it's, like, some of the trail is just a sheet of black ice, and then the other part of the trail is soft enough that you're, like, post-hauling up to your knees. Yeah, no, Um, it's not fun. But in the middle of the winter, it is nice. Well, and when you're trying to ski, I guess at this point, you're, like, thinking about running a little bit more. Well, thank you so much. I normally just like to start by recording, like, an intro that the other person gives, so I'll have you introduce yourself, but then I'll go back and record an intro to and add it in later. Oh gosh, okay. I know, big question. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, 
My name is Abby Levine. I live in Boulder, Colorado, where I've been stuck for the last almost 10 years, which is a little terrifying. I feel very old saying that. I moved out here after graduating from undergrad, where I ran Division One cross-country and track, had some leftover eligibility, came out to CU, ran for CU while I was in grad school, found myself going back to triathlon, which is something I had done in high school, and I grew up as a competitive swimmer while I'm really starting to ramble. No, you're good. Uh, you're good. Went back to triathlon and earned my pro card that summer, raced as a professional triathlete for a couple of years until the existential angst weighed too heavily on my shoulders and I decided I needed to, had to think about the rest of my life. Then I started working in the outdoor industry in PR actually and somehow stumbled into trail running through that, mostly through my friends in Boulder and found myself with a professional contract running for Adidas and now I've stumbled my way into working for Outside Inc., which owns most of the outdoor industry at this point. I specifically work for Gaia GPS, which is a map app, but I get roped into a lot of different mm-hmm. projects over there, including some podcasting, which is very fun. And currently, I still run for fun. Maybe later in this, I'll talk about my professional slash unprofessional journey in the sport. And other than that, just... 31 and wondering what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> well, that was amazing. You did a very good job of pretty much taking us through your entire life very <laughs> succinctly. No, 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 it was great. But I would actually love to hear a little bit about your experience with collegiate running since that's mm-hmm. where you came from. And I, at least I assume it's really different from the part of running culture that you associate yourself with now being more a trail runner in Boulder. So yeah, I guess I would just love to hear a bit about what it was like running in college. Very different than running on the trails. Mostly for worse. A little bit for better, mostly for Mm -hmm. worse. I ran for Princeton in New Jersey, and I actually was a year-round competitive swimmer until I got to college. And in high school, I started running because I was shipped off to boarding school, living in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. My parents refused to drive me 30 minutes in one direction to swim practice, Mm -hmm. and then home, and then 30 minutes in the other direction to high school. So I got shipped to boarding school, had to do a fall sport, and stumbled into cross-country because it seemed like the sport that would keep me in the best shape for swimming, immediately realized I am a much better natural runner than I am a swimmer. And yet all through high school, I really clung on to my swimming identity. I did, you know, swim for my school and we won the New England Championships two years. But in cross country, we won the championships every year, all four years. And I won the individual race my junior and senior year. And even still, I just was hell bent on being a swimmer. That was my identity. And I realized around senior year, I was looking at colleges and at first I thought I wanted to maybe swim and run in college. So I looked at some D3 schools. And at that point, I was just kind of sick of not taking sport as seriously as I would like to. Being in boarding school, I was really stuck with whatever the practice options were at school. And meanwhile, all my day student friends, they were swimming with their club teams. They were doing all this extra training. And I felt like I was getting so behind. So I just really wanted to go somewhere where I could throw myself into a sport. I didn't really care what the sport was. I just wanted to master it. And so I realized my times were good enough to run division one so that's how I ended up at Princeton and I am giving that backstory because even upon getting to Princeton I still thought of myself as a swimmer Mm -hmm. here I am like signing myself up to run division one for three seasons I'm like (laughs) no I'm a swimmer and and then it didn't help that a week into into preseason my knee just flared up on me and it was one of those soft tissue injuries where you have no idea what the timeline is no idea what the issue is I was still pretty new to running at this point and didn't understand running injuries and 
And long story short, the training room was not great at our school. And I spent almost my entire freshman year injured. I didn't race at all my freshman year. So I was swimming a lot. And I thought about actually trying to try out for the swim team. But then I finally got healthy. And my sophomore fall, I made it to our varsity team. We And we went to nationals, which is a pretty big deal just to qualify for nationals in cross country that year. So slowly I started kind of morphing over to being a runner. But then at the end of that season, I got a stress fracture in my pelvis. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think because in high school, I was running about 25 miles a week, like nothing, so little, you know, for someone who's trying to run at a high level, 25 miles objectively is still quite a lot. But anyway, I got this stress fracture, I think, because all of a sudden I was running 70 miles a week and our season was really long since we qualified for nationals, went all the way till Thanksgiving. So then I missed both track seasons of my my sophomore year. So the first half of my collegiate career was really depressing, honestly. I was injured. I was swimming by myself. I felt really isolated. Most people on the team had no clue who I was. My freshman year, I lived in between, I lived in a single, single room, in between a girl on the team and a guy on the team. And even still, nobody on the team knew who I was. I was just like always swimming or biking. In some ways, it there was a silver lining that it allowed me to be quite ready for triathlon season in the summer. I, I was racing a little bit on the junior elite circuit at that point. And uh, after my sophomore year, I think I came in third at junior elite nationals in triathlon, which then later led me to coming back to triathlon after after college but junior and senior year of college were much more fun I was healthy the whole time I was improving a lot and it's funny I I'm so old now I'm 31 so I was in college I graduated in 2013 so this was right when the GPS era was Mm. dawning upon us and I actually I wrote a paper for a class talking about how the GPS watch was transforming the running experience and I did a study just on my teammates looking at people who did use GPS watches mm-hmm. and people who didn't. And I, I didn't. I just had my Timex. And I, I was so fascinated by how GPS was controlling people's runs, like mm-hmm. dictating their mood, their effort, how they felt, even watching people run laps in the parking lot to get to 10.00 miles, which of course I do now. Uh. I completely a sucker for that. <laughs> so it was a weird time. It, it was before social media really took off. We just had Facebook and yeah, running, even though in some ways it was a lot more controlled and precise because I was running on the track, running cross country, everything was time-based and distance-based. And our coach was really fixated on our results, even in practice. It was not a good thing. Whole other story. At the same time, it was in ways more liberating even than mm. trail running is now because you, ha- you had the freedom of just going by feel every long run every Sunday long run go run 15 miles I'm saying that in air quotes because I didn't know how far I was actually running I'd just go run for 90 minutes and it was what it was and I felt good I'd run hard and if I was tired I'd run easy and in some ways I was a lot more in tune with my body back then and Hmm. it was more about the collective experience of running with my teammates and trying to be the best that I could be in races and it was less about fixating on your performance day-to-day which I've definitely gotten better at now Mm. in my late age (laughs) Uh, but very long-winded way of saying that it was different than trail running in ways that perhaps you wouldn't expect now yeah that's really interesting I never have really heard anyone bring up that point but I think it makes so much sense like I think especially those of us who are familiar with Strava or these platforms where you can track your training 
training, not just for you or even you and a coach, but for everyone. I think even people who have all the right intentions and just want to run by feel, it's, I think, sometimes hard not to be like, oh, what is this run going to look like on Strava? Definitely. When you're out there. Yeah. And I feel like it's a constant learning process of trying to learn how to let go, which is so funny because it's completely self-imposed. Like I, I could just not wear a GPS watch. No one's stopping me from doing that. However, it is useful. My coach, David Roach, while he lives in Boulder, I don't see him face to face that often. So I mostly wear it for his benefit. So at least he can have a little bit more insight into my training than just like my three sentences that I say about my run every day, my training log. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You touched on a lot of the specific differences between collegiate running and the running you do now. But I really wanted to get your perspective specifically on the presumed intensity of the collegiate running scene. In high school, for sure, I was like mid-pack, but I got offers to run at like D2 schools. And I just frankly didn't really have any interest because I guess I just assumed that I would get to college and like it would feel really intense and it wouldn't feel like I was doing it for the love of running. And frankly, as somebody who has struggled with disordered eating, I was really worried that that would be amplified or applauded in that environment. Yeah. So I would love if you could speak (laughs) a little bit to that if you're comfortable, of course, because I know it's catchy. But to your first point about the intensity, it was a very conscious choice to go to an Ivy League school where they don't get athletic scholarships uh and that was I really have to thank my mom for that she had the foresight to say look you're in a privileged position where my mom and my dad could pay for college I I recognize that privilege fully they were like you know not only do we want you to get the best education you can we don't want you to be totally stressed out that your ability to go to the school is predicated on your running performance Mm -hmm. so I really really think especially my mom for that foresight she was like one of those moms who was on college confidential I don't even know if that exists anymore (laughs) that forum just like pouring over it like dot mom leave me alone that's amazing (laughs) but to my credit maybe it was her idea for me to look at Princeton I can't remember I looked at Princeton because they were fourth in the country at nationals my senior year and Mm -hmm. they were quite good my junior year too so I knew they had a really good running program and excellent academics the intensity in in the running it's funny because I also have the perspective of running for CU which is a big state school which I ran in grad school for CU and compared to CU the running was way less intense in Mm. some ways like I went out every single weekend and got very drunk almost every weekend and like would show up to long runs hungover you know (laughs) I didn't care that being said our coach was very fixated on our performances in practice to our detriment 100% he would egg us on to race each other on the track Mm. we did all of our cross-country workouts on our cross-country course and we had the Ivy League championship at Princeton my junior and senior year so by the time we'd get to that race I was so burnt out from killing myself on the course every week but really the intensity was mostly balancing academics and athletics that was really hard and I definitely did not sleep enough for four years freshman year actually I this was when I was injured but I was so stressed trying to train as much as I could like staying fit cross training which in hindsight I'm like it's so silly but you know (laughs) you do what you have to do at the time and then balancing academics I was so stressed out I ended up in our clinic our health clinic at school because I was so stressed. I got sick. It was fine. But the academic part of it was really the linchpin, I think. 
for the stress. But then, mm-hmm. oh, well, and then to answer your question about the eating component, when I showed up my freshman year, the girls above me on the team who were very, very good runners, like all American runners, cultivated some type of environment around quite unhealthy eating habits. You go to the dining hall and it was like everyone would eat in a bowl rather than on a plate. And you could tell people were watching each other and policing each other, criticizing what other people were doing. And so my solution to that, because I, I recognize I'm like, I am going to fall prey to this trap as I think pretty much anyone would. Mm-hmm. My solution was to eat with the men's team. Mm. And while there was some disordered eating on the men's team as well, it was much, much more limited and not in your face. And Princeton's kind of a weird school. They have these things called eating clubs where juniors and seniors mostly eat their meals, like these fancy houses on the street. Mm. And it's kind of like a sorority fraternity, but you eat your meals there. It's silly and pretentious. But mm-hmm. almost all of the guys on the team were in one eating club and all of the girls on the team were in the other eating club. So I joined mm-hmm. the eating club with the guys. And so I was actually much closer with the guys team than the women's team because they were they were separate teams. We had separate coaches. And by my senior year, I was traveling with the men to some of their races. Like I, I really kind of tried to adopt myself onto <laughs> that team. And it really did stem from the eating aspect but I mean there are still some of my best friends to stay I talked to two of the guys on the team every single day <laughs> 10 years removed well you might find it interesting to compare this to my experience at CU where at University of Colorado Boulder people don't live in dorms at, at Princeton you live in the dorm all four years mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why the eating aspect was so in your face at CU people kind of did their own thing but the coaches would make comments to people like see that girl on the Washington team you looked like her, you could probably run 10 seconds faster in the 10K. And a very well-known professional runner, she came back to run with the team when I was there after being away for about 10 years, and she was immediately told to lose weight. Oh my it gosh. Was, yeah, you know, multiple-time Olympian. So it was, it was definitely more in your face there. And then actually my, I guess it was my fifth or sixth year, I can't remember. It was either my first or second year at Colorado. I got approached by like an athletic modeling agency asking if I wanted to do some work. And I was like a broke grad student. Mm -hmm. I was like, sure. Like, okay, well, you need to work on your ab definition. And like, they gave me a couple of like physical aesthetic things I had to work on. And I did, I tried for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that my running was suffering. And it was actually a great lesson. Like, you know what? I am not somebody who's genetically gifted to have a six pack. Mm -hmm. I can starve myself into a six pack, but my running sucks. And I quickly realized that's not fun. It's not fun when you're running really well all season. I had like the fourth fastest time in the 10K going into regionals. I didn't qualify for nationals because I had a horrible race. That was probably the best lesson that I I could have had around Hmm. eating and performance. But of course, it's still like, I was actually just talking to a friend about this the other day. Running is such a pernicious sport in the sense that it's very easy to think your performance is correlated with how you look and you you see glimmers of that in results. But over the long term, that is definitely not the case. And I credit the fact that I'm still running at a, I was say high level, but that seems like too. It is a high level. Word. It is. Like, I, I'm still racing. Let's put it that way. I'm still healthy and I'm still racing at age 31 after running competitively since I was 13. I think because I just learned that lesson over and over that you have to treat yourself. You have to nourish your body if you want to remain in the sport. I love how you put that. I think that maybe you had more insight on what was going on with yourself than a lot of people do. Like, I'm not sure how many runners or athletes in general would have the ability to be like, this is an unhealthy environment for me. I'm just going to put myself
yourself in a different environment, like going to this men's eating club, or even the fact that you could see like, oh, trying to change my body is negatively impacting my results. I think a lot of times people have a hard time coming to that on their own. So I guess I'm just curious, and maybe the answer is no, because this is super broad. And I do think that collegiate sports are just a really intense environment. But I'm curious if you think there's anything we can do to make that scene or even just elite sport in general, a little bit of a healthier culture where almost it's like this perspective, like they do accept that maybe in one race, losing a little bit of weight is going to give you a higher VO2 max. But for sure, positively, it will hurt your long term performance. Yeah, Yeah. I I actually have a lot of thoughts on that too. (laughs) And it starts with so my freshman year at Princeton, we showed up and every girl on the team got weighed. It's the first thing that we did. That did not happen on the men's team. And they did it out of good intentions. I think it was because there was this somewhat toxic environment that had preceded me. But it was something that in high school, I never thought about. I never weighed myself in high school. I I didn't even know what an eating disorder was in high school. In hindsight, I can now look back and one of my very close friends on my team in high school, she didn't run in college and it's because she had an eating disorder in high school. At, At the time, I just was like, what's happening? I don't understand why she isn't running anymore. But that simple act of weighing us, and we actually had minimum weights we had to hit. Mm. And I was still growing my freshman year of college. And I showed up and I was very lanky. And I was told I wasn't heavy enough to compete. And it ended up being a non-issue because I was injured anyway from my knee. Mm. But it had the reverse effect, I Mm. think, of the intended effect. (laughs) Like suddenly it was something I was thinking about. And then I was hearing stories about girls who were really good on the team with would put like little ankle weights in their pockets to cheat the weight system. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it was all everyone was thinking about was how much you were weighing. And there was almost this weird competition that formed of like trying to be as close to your minimum weight as possible. And so first off, maybe just stop weighing people like that. Maybe we just cut that out entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And there was also a lot of judgment and moralizing my athletic trainer or our athletic trainer for the women's and the men's cross country team. She was also the men's basketball trainer. She was in her late twenties. She wanted to be, flirting with the men's basketball team she didn't want to be dealing with all the skinny annoying runners who needed to have their knees taped every day and the Mm -hmm. issues that we had and when I had that knee injury she told me she's like you don't have enough muscle on your quads you need to do quad strengthening exercises turns out I had IT band syndrome I learned months and months later when I went home to New Hampshire and saw a running PT in New Hampshire but she just judged me off the bat and as a result gave me the wrong diagnosis that didn't even help with my injury and it was based purely off of how I looked. And so coming from a place of love and compassion and looking at athletes holistically rather than reducing them down to numbers and also getting rid of that judgment and understanding that I I don't know if we're ever going to totally get rid of these disordered eating thoughts and, and ethos from the sport, but recognizing that that's just perhaps an inherent part of the sport and okay, accepting that how can we help people and help them grow and learn from that and actually be as strong as possible and show them what success looks like rather than this preconceived notion of success that athletes show up to college with, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Did you then transition into triathlon because you felt like you were burned out from running or was it really more 
or just that you thought you would enjoy triathlon more? It's that I thought I could be better at triathlon. Mm. I I kind of hate to admit it, but I am extremely motivated by trying to be the best that I can be at something. And I guess that's fine, but it's, it's more than that. I want to be the best. Like I'm very competitive mm-hmm. and it's something that I've really tried to water down over the years because it does not make you friends. Like being ultra competitive mm-hmm. in high school, I, I went to school, I was an editor on the newspaper and I did sports and I had friends from the cross country team and stuff. I never hung out with them. Mm-hmm. I, I was no fun in high school. And so showing up to college, I tried to be more fun, but <laughs> that's a whole other story. Sorry. But yeah, so to that point, so when I showed up uh, to Boulder, I moved in with Emma Coburn, who's now a multiple time Olympian, Olympic medalist in the steeplechase and living with an Olympian in track really made it clear to me, I'm never going to be an Olympian in track and field. I'm just not genetically gifted enough. And runners really like to talk about hard work and how their results are all predicated off of their hard work. I'm going to throw a foot in there and say that genetics plays a role. It just does. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to see you because I wanted to get better at running, and I, which I guess is to the, the my first point that I am also motivated about trying to be the best that I can be. But by my second year at CU, I was like, okay, you know what? I think I can still get better at running, but I'm not going to go to the Olympics and running. Mm-hmm. I could go to the Olympics and triathlon. I could be one of the best in the world at triathlon. And at that point, I had had enough of a break from swimming that I was not burned out from it anymore. And I, I love riding my bike, living in Boulder. The access here is just incredible. And I felt like I was really missing out on a lot of opportunities to explore the landscape around me. So I was also motivated by that as well. It's funny, I when I was just running track and cross country, I had never run up Sanitas or... Mm-hmm climbed Green Mountain or Bear Peak, all of these iconic peaks that are literally right in town. Mm-hmm. I knew all the dirt roads and the track and that was <laughs> it. The creek path. Does that answer your question? Sorry, I was a little rambling there. Yeah, I would be interested to hear a little bit more about what your triathlon experience was because obviously you don't do that anymore, but mm-hmm. I'm sure it shaped who you are as an athlete today. Yeah, so I was on a team in high school that I would just race with them in the summers and one of my teammates, he became a triathlon coach. So he called me up or I called him up. I can't remember which one near the end of my track season, my last track season at CU. And he basically said he wanted to coach me. I was like, great, done. Now I don't have to think about what I'm doing next. Uh I don't know if you feel like this, you're still in school, but that's always in my life what has stressed me out the most. Like, what am I doing next? What comes next? Yeah, exactly. And I miss the comfort of school for that reason, because you know what's next. It's the paper, the semester, the next year of school, whatever. But in the real Mm -hmm. world, you have this crushing existential dread of what am I doing with my life? And he gave me an answer. So I literally had my last track race. I took two days off and I started training for triathlon. And at this point, I hadn't swum at all in several years. At CU, we really didn't cross train at all. I just ran. And so I was getting back in the pool, which felt like shit, to be honest. Swimming is one of those sports that you lose your feel for the water and it's quite hard to get back. Mm. So I was really just trying to get my feel for the water back and swimming. And I started biking a lot and I went to age group nationals that summer which is just the amateur nationals I won the race overall which earned me my pro card and so that fall I think I raced collegiate nationals because it wasn't NCAA at the time so I was allowed to go race that even though I had already used up my NCAA eligibility through running Mm -hmm. and I won that race and then the next year I I had quite a successful year of winning I I won um Canadian nationals don't ask me why they had people from other countries go to that race so I, I should back up and say I was doing drag legal triathlon which is what is in the olympics so it's like a mile swim 
swam 40k bike and 10k run so yeah i won canadian nationals i won should i go back to collegiate nationals maybe it was that year i won collegiate nationals and then i went to new orleans in the fall to do the u.s nationals for mm. draft legal triathlon and i won that race oh my gosh you know i went down by myself to the race and i crossed the line and I was just like you know I just care. Like, I should be more excited about winning this race. And so that got me reflecting on what am I doing with my life? <laughs> Reoccurring theme. As here. it does. Yeah. And I came back to Boulder and I just wasn't excited to get in the pool. Oh, I also should add in that by winning that national championship, I earned gold level funding from USA Triathlon. But there's a lot of politics that goes on and they wanted me to move down to Arizona to train with this thing called the collegiate recruitment program mm. which is what a bunch of now olympians went through and i had just heard bad stories about it from friends and they didn't really allow you to do much else beyond train and even then i was working for clean eating magazine in boulder like i was i had my foot in the door and other things like trying to like at least mm-hmm. keep other career avenues open i can't move to arizona and only do triathlon i'll be really unhappy but i was kind of in this catch-22 where i needed the funding to go to that next level of the sport and I wanted to go race some races in Asia that fall mm-hmm. and I was like okay if I don't have the funding I'm just not going so at that point I got roped into doing my first trail running race <laughs> I went and ran a 50k at the North Face championship races which used to be this big race festival in San Francisco so fun I'm so so sad that race series is gone and I, I went into that 50k and I, I won the 50k and I just had the best time it was like the opposite of triathlon after the race everyone's like sitting around drinking a beer hanging out triathlon it's like oh what are your race wheels oh your wheels are more expensive <laughs> than my wheels oh what's your bike how much does your bike weigh and so, <laughs> you're like the most exciting conversations <laughs> right oh and I should I should also mention that going back to when I earned my pro card in triathlon, that was a draft legal race where mm-hmm. you could race on a TT bike, a town trial bike. I was on a, a road bike. Oh much my slower. gosh. You know, I was just like, I don't give an F. Like, I'm here. I'm going to do my best. Ended up winning. Like, well, you, know, you like, should have been like, let me tell you about my bike. Yeah. Here's my heavy road bike. I've had it for 10 years. So that was always kind of my attitude in triathlon. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. Everything's so expensive. Everyone's so into their gear and how much they paid for their gear. So I really, like, the relaxed atmosphere of trail running was such a breath of fresh air for me. In addition to the fact that in the three weeks that I trained for that 50k, I suddenly was running on all these trails in Boulder that I had never heard of. It was like walking through the door into Narnia. It just blew my mind. There was this whole world in Boulder I had never seen. At this point, I'd lived in Boulder for four years and I just was like, I can't go back to triathlon. I just can't do it. And Mm -hmm. so that was the end of my triathlon career. (laughs) Because you mentioned earlier that you are really competitive and I guess just the way I'm imagining it, that probably fit in really well in the triathlon environment. I mean, it sounds like all of these people were very intense, very competitive. And I feel like trail running, I almost feel like in trail running, there are a lot of people who try and say that they're less competitive than they are, because it is this really relaxed environment. And I think we all love that about it. But I also think you can like enjoy a super relaxed run with a friend. But I think it's fine to be super competitive during a race. Like, I mean, I don't think that we would line up at races, really, if we didn't care at all how we did. And so I'm curious if you felt a little bit out of place at the beginning with that attitude or how you've reconciled that. Yeah, I think I just 
really tried to tone myself down. I'm not exactly sure what comes first, but when I was racing triathlon, I was so motivated mm-hmm. to be good. And I don't feel like I quite have that fire that I did then. I just felt like I was unstoppable. And it was a very special feeling that in, in hindsight, I, I really cherish. because I don't know if I'll ever have that again, where for whatever reason, I believed in my running ability at that point, to the point where if I was in a race and I was two minutes down going into the 10K, I knew I was going to win the race. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what happened at that Canadian race, actually. Canadian Nationals, all the Canadians ganged up on me on the bike. Oh my gosh. Because there's, you know, there's a lot of tactics that go on, which is which is a fun part of, part of it. But on the bike in that race, they were giving me a hard time for not pulling my weight, which mm-hmm. is where you're in the front and everyone's drafting off of you. Meanwhile, we were rotating through. I was pulling people along. Well, it turns out they just wanted to drop me. So, <laughs> you know, they got me into this position where I was pulling and we came around and turned and they all were in cahoots and sprinted away from me. And so mm-hmm. I ended up, I started that run two minutes down. The mm-hmm. 10K, I was two minutes down and I ended up winning. And the girls were really mean, actually. Like my, my mm-hmm. parents were at that race. They drove up because it was somewhere above New Hampshire. But my parents were kind of horrified. They were like, are you sure you want to be in this sport? Like people like, these, don't seem these nice. These girls are terrible, yeah. So I think that kind of had a formative effect on me where I got to trail running. And I completely agree with you that people are still very competitive in trail running and don't let them fool you otherwise. But it's a little bit more of the Wild West where mm-hmm. no one exactly knows the best way to train. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the other person. Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of money in the sport, so most people have other jobs or like me they're attracted to the sport because you can have a full-time job and also trail run Mm -hmm. because it just hasn't reached that level of competitiveness as road running has or track I guess like maybe the fire wasn't there quite to the degree that it was in triathlon but also I was just so glad to be out of that toxic environment triathlon really did illuminate to me the pitfalls of being too competitive that makes a lot of sense so sorry I mean I'm having you like recap your entire athletic experience so I'm sorry but I'm just like so fascinated this is therapy the, for me, so don't apologize. By the trajectory. I guess I'm curious then how you became a sponsored runner because you were running for Adidas and how you feel like the sponsorship model worked for you. And actually, I don't want to assume wrong, but you're no longer sponsored by yeah, them, yeah. correct? Like, it's funny. I actually, I've been wanting to talk about this. I thought about writing about it and I just figured there wasn't a good way to put it into words. So I haven't really talked about this publicly, but I'm happy to. And there's no reason I haven't really. My sponsorship felt into my lap actually and it was through a triathlon coach Siri Lindley she's an icon in the triathlon world she at the time was living in Boulder and she was friends with what was then the new Adidas Terex athlete manager because he Mm. used to be a professional triathlete over in Germany and he must have reached out to her and said hey do you know of any up-and-coming trail runners who want to be sponsored And, and Siri knew who I was just in the Boulder scene and so she reached out to me or maybe her wife one of them reached out to me and put me in touch with this Adidas manager and it was funny at the time I had just quit triathlon and I was like I am done being a professional athlete like I'm so over it I want to be a real person with a real job and he reached out to me and it just sounded too good to be true I was literally the first athlete that they signed and he was like yeah we don't really want you to like go through lawyers or an agent like to sign this contract okay 
I mean, it was like, all of a sudden, I should also mention that my closest friends in, in Boulder were all professional trail runners at this point. My, my friend Claire from college was running for the North Face at the time. My friend Hillary was running for the North Face. So I was surrounded by these people who I saw what doors got open to them once they were running mm-hmm. with a contract. They could fly to Europe and they suddenly weren't spending $1,000 on shoes every year. All these little things. And, you know, I would love to go race in Europe. I would, I would love to be able to afford more than one pair of shoes a year. Mm-hmm. So I signed the contract and at this point I'd only run two trail races. I'd run the one in California and then I had run the Dirty 30 down near Golden, Colorado and I actually had broken my wrist six or eight miles into that race and, and won the race on a broken, oh my my broken wrist. And so maybe that was also partly how Adidas found me. Uh, it's my like a Killian move, like breaking a bone. No, well, you broke his collarbone. That's way, that's way more intense. Like the wrist, like I was honestly kind of happy for the distraction at the time because I was wearing these new shoes that a co-worker had given to me two days before the race. I literally had never worn them. They were like a pair of, I forget, one of the Lost Sportiva models which were meant for very technical mountain running. Wouldn't recommend <laughs> your first run being 30 miles in them on runnable trails. Oh my, so my gosh. So my feet were killing me in this race. So I was really actually quite happy to have this distraction of my wrist really hurting me. Oh my gosh. Um, and just coincidentally, my good buddy Kirk happened to be filming me at this race and he made a little film and it went on YouTube and some people saw it. So I think that also maybe helped with the Adidas contract. But anyway, long story short, I had no experience. I signed this contract and suddenly I actually found myself in this position that I didn't want to be in, which was I had all this pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, I run two races, both in the US. I never raced in Europe, I was so new to trail running. Literally, I had been trail running for six months. I had so much work to do on my technical trail running ability. I really needed contacts at the time, but I was in denial about it. So I was like running and I couldn't see where I was going. And you know, I'm breaking my wrist in the race. Like, I'm just like, I was a hot mess. Uh-huh. And now all of a sudden, I feel like I have all this pressure to perform because I'm a quote sponsored runner. And so that actually really weighed on me for the three and a half years that I was sponsored. And it was also a good lesson. I was going to sign the contract no matter what, because I wanted to be able to go to Europe. But at the time, Adidas was just starting their trail running shoe line. And I got very injured in many, many pairs of mm-hmm. shoes because they were just brand new and the team was still figuring out how to actually make trail shoes so I did this photo shoot in this one pair of shoes where you're running back and forth for like a week really long days of filming <laughs> and I got plantar fasciitis from the shoe and I, mm. I just remember I was in Austria filming this and crying because I physically could not run but I, we had a couple more days of filming to do so I'm hobbling through the Alps wearing these shoes that were making me injured I'm like oh my gosh what have I gotten oh my myself gosh. into and then the next year I broke my foot with which I think was from the shoe that I was wearing at the time. And it was a good lesson that if you do have the privilege to be able to run, like maybe consider the pros and cons of signing Mm -hmm. that contract. And it has led me, well, I guess just finish this first part of the story. Then the pandemic hit and I just really didn't see eye to eye with the way that Adidas was handling the pandemic. My grandma passed away like a month into the pandemic, she was in a nursing home in New Jersey and was losing her memory. And so she had no idea what was going on. She got COVID and she got moved from her little room in the nursing home to the COVID ward. And suddenly none of her photos are there of her family. She's wondering why her family members oh. who were visiting every day suddenly aren't visiting. And she died a week later. And so also, meanwhile, my sister, who is a much better person than me, she was in EMT at the time. She was working in Boston, but she got sent to New York City. So she mm. was shuttling dead bodies around 
in New York City. This is, you know, May or April or May of 2020. And I just felt like troning and racing just did not matter. You know, mm -hmm. my grandma had just died. My sister was seeing the health disparities happening in New York, how people, less privileged people were getting treated so differently than people with privilege who could go to whichever hospital they wanted to. And I just really did not care about competition at that moment in time. And Adidas asked us to go set an FKT because their whole marketing agenda for the year had been structured around races and suddenly all the races were canceled. So they said, okay, shifting gears, we want you to go set an FKT. We don't really care what it is. Just set an FKT so we can make some marketing videos around it. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I just really didn't want to participate at the time. Like I just did not seem important to me to go do some silly FKT that I didn't care about when like, first of all, you got yelled on the trails every time you went outside in Boulder. Yeah. <laughs> and secondly, I'm just my headspace, you know, other things to, to worry about. Yeah. And so I knew my contract was ending at the end of that year. So I wrote it out and the rest of the year kind of unfolded like that, where I just didn't really feel personally invested in, and aligned with where the brand was going. And I was the first athlete that they signed. So everything that developed with that team over those three and a half years that I was on it, it changed so much mm -hmm. from what I had signed up for. And not that it's bad. I love a lot of those people on that team. And I think that their shoes have improved immensely. And I love so, so many of the people who work for Adidas, but I just finally maybe reached this level of maturity where it's like, you know what? I have a full-time job. I can pay for my own shoes. Mm -hmm. I can pay to go race in Europe if I want to. And during the pandemic, racing doesn't seem that important to me. I don't want to be forced to race when I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And running, we're in this really weird point in the sport where all of the money basically is tied up in these shoe contracts, but shoe technology is changing so quickly mm -hmm. that you're really at a disadvantage if you're stuck with the wrong brand. And you really see this in, in marathoning where mm -hmm. if you're not running in Nikes, like you're at a yeah, disadvantage. you're like a fish out of water. I mean, it's painfully clear that you're at an actual scientific disadvantage. Right, exactly. And in trail running, I didn't know this when I started my contract with Adidas, I didn't know what trail shoes were. I was just running in my road shoes. Mm. It really wasn't until the end of my contract when I started running in other brands of shoes. Oh my gosh, my ability to cover terrain varies so drastically by what shoe I'm wearing. Mm. And that was like this very ridiculous aha moment that literally everyone else has like on their second day of trail running, but took me like four years to figure out. Yeah. Going back to your last point, I remember a few years ago, I was listening to a podcast and I think maybe you and Claire, as I remember it, I think you were Was it both... Julia Hanlon's podcast? I think it was, yes. Oh, um, I love her so much. Yes, and I it's remember you being like, I really wish I could be with Claire at Western States, but mm. I have to go to this race in Austria. And the way you were talking yeah. about it, it really seemed at least like it felt like you had to go and you weren't really all that excited. And then like you were talking about Claire going to Western States and when you would talk about that, you almost could just hear through the microphone that you were like lighting up. And then you would talk about this race and it would be like, oh, I have to go to Austria. Yeah, you have a good memory. And that's a whole other aspect of it where you have to remember that these shoe contracts, it's all marketing. Mm -hmm. It's all fabricated. And 
And yes, I did feel like I was at this weird odds with, okay, I have this contrived team that I'm on and I have to go to these races. It's in my contract. I have to go to the Austria race, but that's preventing me from living my life. Like I'm lucky to live in a town filled with trail runners. I have so many friends here mm-hmm. who are trail runners and it really bummed me out that I couldn't support my, my friends that I train with day in and day out. And I'm so invested in their success. And instead I have to go do these things that marketing management is telling me to do. You know, it reminds me, I've been joking recently. I'm like, you know, maybe I should start giving shoe advice because who better to get shoe advice from than somebody who's not paid to give it? Like, that's so true. I feel like social media is this very bizarre game that everybody knows is fake, yet they buy into anyway. Like, Mm -hmm. when you see, let's take Jim Wamsley as an example. When you see Jim Wamsley win Western States in Hocus Pocus, which happened to be my favorite trail shoe, by the way. Yeah, in case you were wondering. But people are like, Wamsley won the race in these shoes, so they must be the best shoes. No, he's just the best runner. Like, he could be running in pretty much any shoe that's not going to get him injured, and he's going to win the race. It's so bizarre to me that people are paid to fake promote these things because they're getting paid to do it and everyone buys into it. But at the same time, they know it's fake. They still buy into it. For sure. I mean, on that note, I guess I would be super interested just in your perspective on social media, because I think there are ways that people can be connected with positive role models. Like I think about people who speak out about environmental activism or who like, yes, are willing to share about that really crappy run they had. And I feel like those those things bring a lot of positivity to my life, but I also feel like in general, that's not the case. Like I even think about footprints when we were at just like this remote hut for a week. And honestly, I was like, just not being able to check social media every day. I feel like my mental health is so much more secure. It's tough. Like I think about when I was younger, And I think when I was younger and arguably like my mind was even more malleable, the first people I found on social media were not positive role models. Like it wasn't the Claire Gallagher's and the Abby Levine's of the world who are like using their platform for good. So yeah, I guess I would just love a little bit of your insight on social media because I think especially as an athlete, it does kind of feel like a big, a big part of what's required these days. I hope not for too much longer. Yeah, I I mean, I feel bad for your generation. You're younger enough than me that your experience with social media has been so different than mine, Mm -hmm. where it was a thing when you were in high school. So you've never really experienced being an elite athlete without it. And I guess my first rule is I'm militant with who I follow. If somebody bugs me, and and I I don't mean this maliciously, like there are lots of people that I love that I just, I feel upset seeing what they post. I just don't follow them and I hope they don't take that personally mm-hmm. or I mean hopefully no one notices like who cares if I'm following you or not or whatever you know like yeah, probably <laughs> people should not be checking their followers anyways like yeah, I think that's totally. a recipe to hurt that's actually one of my rules I never look at who likes photos I try not to look at who's following me I am very judicious in who I follow and I you never really reach a perfect solution here but I, I do try to curate my feed to only see things that make me happier rather than sadder and so during the pandemic I really got sick of seeing it didn't align to me to see people really excited about their own athletics when the world 
was falling apart. So mm-hmm. I just didn't follow those people. And, and that was for my own mental health. It wasn't anything against what they were doing. Because I really fully understand that everybody processes the world in different ways. And like right now it's happening in Ukraine. I personally haven't been motivated to post on social media because I'm just really bummed out about mm-hmm. what's happening over there. And it doesn't really feel important to me to be sharing about my own life. But I understand that for other people, they can hold both things in their heart at once and they can be worried and care about what's happening in Ukraine and share about their own life. And that's great. And I I support people doing that. I just have to take care of myself first and think about what I want to see, what I don't want to see. So that's kind of my number one rule. But I am hoping that social media evolves in a way. I do think that the internet is changing. You know, there was Web 1, which was like the information economy, Google, etc. And then Web 2 has been the social media economy of like likes as currency, but no one's actually getting paid. And Mm -hmm. perhaps we're moving into Web 3 where people will start getting paid more directly for their content and their services and what they're providing. And I'm hopeful that while I'm like not a crypto NFT Mm -hmm. person at all, like 100% not, I am hopeful that we're going to reach this like new level of understanding that the like economy is not really serving anybody and it's creating a lot of unhappiness. I think that's definitely true. And I mean, maybe this will segue us a bit into talking about your work, but I think for me, one of the things actually that's made me saddest with social media is I was always that super nerdy kid who would be like, it's Sunday morning, we got the New York Times. And I would like read the whole newspaper. And now living in the mountains, like we don't get paper newspaper delivered to our house. But I don't even know if that's as much of a thing in the city anymore. I think with social media, people's attention span in ways has shortened. Personally, like I love long form journalism. Like I love being able to read these super in-depth articles that are profiles on really cool people or really cool places. And I just feel like in social media, you don't like you don't get that same level of exposure. So yeah, I mean, maybe it segues us a bit. I would love to hear about how you cultivate the more creative side of your identity. Mm. Because I think it's a big part of who you are. I guess I just don't want this podcast to just be about Abby (laughs) Levine as an athlete. You know, Grace, you're you're so wise because this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently. So growing up, I was really into theater. I was really into acting. I starred in a couple of musicals. I went to acting camp. Obviously, I did all the school plays, but I would do plays in the summer. I loved everything about acting and screenwriting and, and being in that world. And my freshman year of high school, I starred in Twelfth Night. I played Viola in Twelfth Night. And ironically, it was at that moment that I realized I did not fit in at all with the acting world in mm-hmm. high school because because those kids were as dedicated to acting as I was to sports. And I immediately realized I could not be a three-sport varsity athlete and try to be really involved in theater. And going back to like my unfortunate competitive tendencies, I just didn't want to half-ass either mm-hmm. one. So I totally gave it up. And it's only like in the last year or two, now that I feel like I'm getting old, Oh my gosh, this is so funny to me because I feel like the people that I run with in Summit County are like mid 40s. So I'm like, Abby's calling yourself old. She's like, it's all the same once you're over 30. I don't know. The way I should better phrase that is now that I see this horizon on my athletic career in a way that I was really ignorant to in my 20s, where sure, I can always try to be the best that I can be, but at some point, I'm no longer going to get faster. And I know myself well enough, I am going to be very bothered 
overwhelmed by that when I reached that point. And as part of the reason why I've moved up in distance, where I keep running longer and longer distances, I, I do really enjoy the new challenges of longer distances. But I also enjoy the idea of improving. Anyway, going back to my theater realization, my acting realization, I got really bummed out recently that I just felt like I had let this creative side of me die. And that's why, I guess, a little over a year ago, I helped restart this podcast with my friends who run a production company called Thereabouts. And I've been working with them like more broadly on projects and they're trying to get into the feature film world and hmm. I'm like latching myself onto them. So I'm like, yes, this is so fun. I want to be involved in these fun, big creative projects where I can really use my brain in these ways that I really miss. And same thing with art. I was really into art and I just gave it up when I got mm. to college. And that's something that I've reincorporated back into my life a bit, whether it's through designing logos for fun on the side or painting people cards. I have this horrible habit. I only send thank you cards if I've painted them myself. So as a result, I A, sometimes don't send the card or B, send it a year late. I'm like, this is bad. I just need to buy the card and send it. I'm not like, who am I helping I mean, here? it means Absolutely so not. much more to people then though. It's like so but much it, more But if you don't end up sending it at all, like what have you accomplished, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I'm just trying to come to this reckoning where in some ways I'm like, did I mess up? Did I go down the wrong path? Should I have gone down the more artistic path rather than the athletic path? And I keep coming back to the answer of no. I really go internal and examine what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Athletics make me so happy. And when I can't exercise or train, I 100% am a much grumpier, less happy person. Mm-hmm. That's something that I will have to continue to work on throughout my life because you can never take your athletics and your health for granted. Yeah, I guess I feel like I'm kind of caught in this crosswinds where I'm limited by my desire to pour my heart and soul into something and be as good as as I can be. But at the same time, I want to do athletics and also do these more creative pursuits. And Mm -hmm. can I do both at once? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. I guess I'm curious if there is like an interplay for you. Like, for example, do you feel like you're writing and your athletics are tied or do you think that they're completely different things for you? They're definitely tied, especially in my job. I work for Outside Inc., which owns everything in the outdoor world, including Outside Magazine, Showrunner, Backpacker, Climbing, Ski, all these iconic magazines. Pretty much any outdoor magazine you could think of. They right. Have at this point. Exactly. And I actually, I came into working for them because I was working for Gaia GPS, which is a mapping app, and we got acquired by Outside. And so I've slowly gotten pulled into other components of the company other than just maps. Before we got acquired, Gaia, we have this newsletter that we sent, we were sending out every week and it just was like a cash cow. I got to write about whatever I wanted and we would send out this newsletter and make all this money and it was like so easy and life <laughs> was so great. And then we got acquired and things got much harder. <laughs> so uh, sadly, like in some ways I get to be more creative through things that outside in other ways, it's a lot more stressful and I actually have to do a lot more analytical work of like, okay, mm-hmm. I have to build a new landing page tomorrow to try to sell this certain thing. But it's been, that's been good too because I think it's easy to lull yourself into this sense of complacency like Mm. oh I'm doing just enough creative things at work like we were producing two podcasts for a while at work just at work not even my podcast I do for fun on the side so I was doing that creative stuff I was writing about whatever I wanted to do 
But when I think about where I'm going with that long term, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not that inspired to try to be like the chief marketing officer or something. Like mm-hmm. that just isn't what excites me. What excites me is creating really fun work that speaks to people's souls and hopefully improves the world in some way or at least helps people gain a new perspective on something. Mm-hmm. My point there is while my actual work that I get paid to do isn't as creative as I would like it to be sometimes, it really has forced me into this self-reckoning of what do I want to do mm-hmm. with my life, which I know I've said about a hundred times so far on this podcast, but for better or for worse, I do think it's good to like constantly be examining that. And it does prevent you from getting lulled into the sense of complacency that you're happy with where you are. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that is kind of the reason that you've gotten more into the activism space or do you think that that comes from something totally different? That comes from this overwhelming sense of guilt that mm. sports are extremely selfish. I mentioned to my sister earlier, she's such a giving person. She always puts others over herself. She's in school right now to be a physician's assistant and she just wants to work with underserved populations, like go to other countries and, and to parts of this country where people really need help and just help those people who have a harder time getting help for themselves. And my dad's a doctor. I come from a family of people in the medical profession and they're so giving. And actually my grandfather, he died when he was in his 50s, but my sister recently found this video that another doctor made of him. He was an oncologist and in the video, they interview some of his patients and the way they light up with how much my grandfather improved their lives. Like I was crying. I think it was the first time I'd actually even ever heard him speak because, you know, he died in his 50s and technology back then wasn't very good, but it was so moving to me the way he was such a giving person. And so with activism in sports, you know this and you see this, like the sports that we do, we are seeing the direct effects of climate change every day mm-hmm. in what we're doing. And I noticed that before I, I got involved with Protector Winters and I just felt really guilty that I was benefiting from all of these amazing natural resources that we get to go play on. I was seeing the effects of climate change and I was spending so much time doing something that's so selfish and really mm-hmm. just for my own happiness. For better or for worse, I guess for better, but doesn't really matter. I started running much better once I was able to connect it to something beyond myself and to mm-hmm. a higher power, a greater purpose than just my own results that literally no one cares about other than me and is not improving the world in any way whatsoever. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I think it gets hard because for a lot of people, athletics can give us this wonderful platform, you know, to hopefully expose more people to things like climate change. But then at the same time, I find myself being like, okay, well, take Gimo, a Eurocentric sport. Here I am. It's mm. so hypocritical. It's like, here I am saying I'm a vegetarian for ethical reasons, also environmental reasons. And then I go get on a plane and I fly to Europe a few times throughout the winter. I think it can be hard because I think so many athletes are invested and do really care. It just sometimes can be hard to reconcile that when you're like, well, but if I consider athletics my job, my job, quote unquote, requires me to travel. And I guess, I mean, I don't even know if there's necessarily a question in there, but I just love that like with Protect Our Winters then, it's like you can be involved in climate policy, not just individual action. Yeah, well, I think it's so important to remember that we're all imperfect. And I love Pau's message that we're all imperfect advocates. And yes, like maybe we eat cheese and we get on airplanes or whatever we do. First of all, we have to live in a system that was created around us. There are some people on the POW Alliance who have lived off the grid and like, they'll tell you, it's like impossible and like not helping anyone really. Like it's actually, 
actually, really, this is a systemic issue Mm -hmm. and it can be more impactful rather than living off the grid and not talking to anybody, going to DC, advocating for policy that's going to have this seismic shift that we need in society if we actually want to do anything about climate change. Yeah. I have one more thought that I just remembered about about the climate advocacy, which is right now, Project Our Winters is running this Crush It for Climate campaign. And to be perfectly honest, I'm having a hard time engaging with that because of everything that's happening in Ukraine. And like, I realize climate change is this existential threat looming over our heads, impacting us every single day. But it's still hard to be fired up about this campaign when I actually, I just talked to a Ukrainian marathoner for my podcast the other day and hearing her stories firsthand like how can we not be thinking of anything else you know so so it's something that I'm definitely struggling with and it's I guess my only point is even even climate advocacy or any form of advocacy is it's not like a perfect solution to the world and everything is really complicated and messy and we're just trying to figure it out day by day well and I will say like I totally understand where you're coming from and I think for me the ethics of it come into play because I think back for example to like world war two i feel like a lot of the times we try and justify the rest of the world not acting by saying that they didn't know what was going on because at that time like the media was a lot less prevalent and so they didn't have this perspective that social media today has given us into the conflict and it does just feel so hard to reconcile like all of us living our lives in the u.s going about our day to day complaining about the fact that it's windy on a run (laughs) When there is this huge war going on that is really deeply impacting people's lives. And it is like, yes, advocacy is great. And these issues are issues now, but also they will still be issues in 20 years. When you think about war, it's like, well, these people are going to be, they're not going to survive to even care about climate advocacy. Yeah, then it's hard. It's like, how do you share like a reel of you running? Or like, even with Crush It for Climate, it's like, it's great message. But at the end of the day, I'm still like, here's this big adventure I did. And it makes me want to protect the earth. But I'm just so privileged to be able to do that to begin with. You know, I I think it is hard to reconcile. Yeah, yeah. And I I honestly don't have a solution because it's I think the reality is that we're just going to constantly be confronting these enormous disasters throughout time. The Mm -hmm. pandemic is still going on. There was the Black Lives Matter movement during the pandemic. Now we have a war. It's one thing after the next. And it's not like, okay, well, I'll do the climate advocacy after this all ends because mm-hmm. it's not going to end. Yeah. But it, it is hard to be thinking longer term when, as you said, people are dying right now. And it's in a way like a metaphor for itself for the climate change emergency, right? Like everyone's like, well, we have more pressing issues yeah. to deal with. It's like, okay, well, we're going to wake up someday and we won't be able to come back from this. Yeah. Jeez. So I'm, I'm I just, I I just feel like I need to like have... go in journal for a while. I'm like, oh, oh gosh, no, there's sorry. so much to reflect on here. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I wish I, I wish I had a better solution. And I really don't, I guess, other than like everything is day to day. And sometimes I feel like I'm able to commit myself to certain things and other days I'm not. And you just have to mm-hmm. go with the flow and be productive where you can and listen to your needs when you need to, to answer your way less depressing question <laughs> than what I answered. But also uh, less important than the war in Ukraine. <laughs> 
So I'm racing Canyons 100K next weekend. I don't know why. I thought that was a good idea, but oh, awesome. here we are. It seems like really, it's going to be super well, competitive. I know. I give myself this rule every year. Like I'm not racing in the spring because I love skiing and winter mm. and being in the snow. And I do not like putting pressure on myself for winter training. And I don't want to injure myself, forcing myself to do certain workouts mm. in the ice and the snow. But here we are. For whatever reason, I figured a little self-flogging was <laughs> a good a good idea for next weekend beyond that for athletics i'm signed up for ccc i really wanted to do utmb but the points are so weird the 100 mile race from rabbit run that i did last fall wasn't counting for points so i only had enough points to do ccc so oh my gosh that seems crazy especially because you're like there's not really a better american hundred like you can't know, have a pacer I, you're like it's the best emulation of utmb totally. in the u.s <laughs> well and then hard rock probably but that's, that's true to get but, into. yeah i actually according to to my coach they might have later added run rabbit as mm. a qualifier but i had already signed up i need to look into it i would much rather just go over there and run around the mountain once and then not have to come back there <laughs> and other than that i'm working a lot but i'm, I'm really trying actually to work less <laughs> and that's partly because we have these yearly reviews this past year we got acquired i busted my butt i was working i don't know 55 60 hours a week which compared to all my friends in finance is nothing but that's a lot more than like what most people are doing in Boulder. But anyway, we had our, our yearly reviews, which you get failed on one to five and I got a three and it was like the biggest slap in the face to me. I do not know how I could have worked harder mm-hmm. and gone above and beyond more. So I'm just going to work less. Well, I mean, probably you'll still get a three. Exactly. Exactly. And <laughs> it, it was kind of this horrible moment of self-realization where I was like, I guess I'm more externally motivated at work than I thought I was. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's it's partly because outside has these very ambitious sales goals that we hadn't met. And so I think they weren't allowed to give out higher mm. scores in a lot of instances. But like, either way, people say this as a cliche that like a job is a job and you shouldn't treat it like your best friend or a family member or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, it was really at that moment that that hit me as true. Like, wow, mm-hmm. corporations do not care about you. And you need to remember that when you're investing in them. It's been good though, because it's allowed me to, to revive these more creative things like this podcast I do with my friends over at Thereabouts and we have a couple other podcasts that we're starting and we have a whole subscription model that we're working on to provide like really quality content for people which I will say I just want to interject quickly here I think maybe actually it was you who had shared it or maybe I saw it somewhere else but I had seen a link to a Velo News article uh, about Taylor Finney and so I had gone to read it and I was like wow this seems super clickbaity then I listened to the podcast and I was like this dichotomy could not be funnier to me because the <laughs> podcast itself is not at all clickbaity. That was a disaster. Well, actually, I mean, it was a disaster in the sense that, so if people haven't listened, we interviewed our good friend Taylor Finney, who's incredibly accomplished road cyclist in the U.S., and he retired a couple years ago. We interviewed him and really got to this truth that even though he's such a public figure, he really hadn't ever shared publicly. Mm-hmm. And we spent a long time crafting that podcast my friend Gus and I like it's a very highly produced show where Mm -hmm. we chop up the interview and and really distill it down to the essence of the story with narration and stuff Mm -hmm. anyway Velo News which is owned by Outside Inc let me remind you (laughs) to be clear (laughs) they as you said just took 
a quote out of context, turned it into clickbait. That then led to Eurosport Italia misinterpreting their misinterpretation of what Taylor had said, which led to like accusations of doping and all of these things that A, are completely false and B, were not at all stated in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And it was this kind of horrible moment where Gus and I felt horribly for Taylor, who suddenly is getting accused of these things that he didn't do, but also like a moment of reassurance that like, yes, we are doing the right thing mm-hmm. by doing this podcast and like trying to tell stories that traditional media outlets aren't telling. And that's partly because they have advertising and corporate interests and like are really sheltered in what they're allowed to say. And then also partly because we just don't give mm-hmm. any Fs and we're just going to try to get to the heart of the story yeah. and tell it the way it's supposed to be told. I mean, I do just want to make it clear, like my point was not at all like, oh, Abby went out and like sold this clickbait story. No, I know, I know. It, it I totally know. was like, I, I, I love that the podcast does look for these really honest insights. Even I loved listening to the one with Anton Krupichka because I think like he's one of those figures where I almost feel like when I first got into ultra running, there were just all these stories around him and it almost felt like stories that you would like tell around the campfire or something. And you're like, how much truth is there to any of this? Like it almost just seemed like mythical. He was one of those where I was like, I really appreciate that there is a conversation with him. Yeah, totally. Oh, well, thank you so much for listening. That that means a lot to me. We've got through this whole interview and I haven't gotten to ask you any questions. So before you you go, I just want, I want to get to ask you a question. Okay. (laughs) What are your thoughts on the state of schema right now? And how does that fit into your hopes and dreams in the sport? Oh gosh, that feels like a very large question. I feel like I have a lot of thoughts. I actually, I think it's interesting. I was speaking about this with the woman I was running with this morning and I've found it really interesting this year because I have so many people who come up to me and ask me about the Olympics and it's just like assumed right away that that is my main goal now. And I have so many moments of self-reflection where I'm like, should I care more? And I'm like, everyone else cares a lot. And I'm like, maybe I should care more. But I actually think in reflecting this past year, I think that the sport is growing tremendously. And I think that Olympic inclusion could help that. And honestly, I think the way I see it, there are hopefully going to be more avenues for everyone. I would love it if the US could develop a really, really great sprint specialist who could win Olympic gold. And I would love it if that is not me. Like I have no interest in that. And I think if the US had people in all specialties who were really good, at what they do mm-hmm. I don't know like selfishly my hope is that then I could feel okay racing the world cups that I wanted to race doing long races doing longer expedition style things yeah and like not feel pressure to be the one who represents the U.S. at short things because frankly mm-hmm. like when people talk about what the Olympics what they think the Olympics are gonna look like I'm like I don't know why anyone would assume that I would even have a chance frankly I am not a good sprinter like I love long days in the mountains and I think that is what I've always loved about our sport sorry I'm like I'm forgetting your question well and it it illuminates that the Olympics means something different to every sport Mm -hmm. you look at cycling the Olympics aren't that important like most riders if they're right racing the Tour de France they're going to prioritize that over the Olympics Mm -hmm. not always the sprinters will go to the Olympics but Mm -hmm. winning the yellow jersey or winning the Tour de France is a much bigger accomplishment in cycling than Mm -hmm. winning Olympic gold but also to your point like that's really beautiful that you're able to recognize like what aspects of the sport do I love and can I excel at and Mm -hmm. I don't need to fit into this mold 
it's just to serve this one purpose of going to the Olympics. I think certainly there are days where I'm like, I wish I was more motivated by the Olympics because I have friends I see and they are super motivated by that dream. And I think that motivation is something special, being able to Mm. chase something really hard for four years. But I think just for me personally, when I think about it, I'm like, I would be way more proud of myself if I could win a World Cup overall, compete consistently well throughout a season than if I showed up to the Olympics and had one good day and one gold. And I think it just comes from everybody having different motivations and having different approaches to sport. But it has been really funny to me this year because I think the Olympic news was fairly big. I think people are a little bit shocked when they're like, oh, you must be really excited for the Olympics. And I'm just like, you know, maybe I'll try. But honestly, like, I don't care that much. And all of the respect to the people who do, but also maybe it ties into the fact that I, as a kid, was never super great at any sport. So like, I haven't, like you hear Olympians who are like, I Mm. dreamed about the Olympics when I was four. And I'm like, I never even thought that I could do sport after high school so like I'm like the Olympics to me I'm like that was never a dream that I thought was even remotely within my reach to that point about racing seriously or professionally as an adult you're also incredibly smart and could do so many things in life do you ever have those existential questions of what's the right path for me to go down how long do I focus on sport do I try to balance it with something else when I'm done with school yeah I mean (laughs) this is funny because now this is just therapy and honestly (laughs) I have been seeing a sports psychologist this year and she probably is so tired of me because she was probably like oh this is another athlete who's coming in who wants to talk about her athletic performance and instead I'm like what am I doing with my life school doesn't feel important I don't feel like I'm doing enough and it's like not at all related to sport I think for me it comes back to how we're talking about how sport can feel so selfish like I just I love sport and I would love to be a quote-unquote professional athlete. I definitely think it deserves air quotes because I'm like, in schemo, really, how much of a job is it? Like, we're not like NFL players. Right. But like, I would love to be a supported athlete for as long as I possibly can. And sport inspires me so much. And just like the mountains bring so much joy into my life. But frankly, like I never want to be somebody who doesn't have something else. And so like right now, quite frankly, I'm kind of going through one of the existential crises where I'm like, I'm studying finance and I could not hate it more. And like (laughs) in high school, I loved school. And so I think I've been like the fact that I'm not loving school, it bugs me and I want to I want to find something I'm passionate about. And I'm not totally sure what that is yet. But I think for me, like balancing sports and school or sport and work will always be important because just sport. I don't know. It's not what I want. And I think it would be really unhealthy. I mean, if athletics was all I had or like if my livelihood depended on athletics, I think I would lose the joy in it because it would just feel like a job and it's like what do you do if you get or when you get injured like everybody goes through that if athletics are your whole life what do you have when you don't have them yeah I think the thoughts you're feeling I've thought about a lot and I think it's the paradox 
of being a very creative, smart person where you, backing up for a second, you see a lot of professional athletes who frankly don't have much going on in their brains. Mm -hmm. They do their sport and they don't overthink it. David Foster Wallace talks about this in his essay, How Tracy Austin Broke My Heart, which is what I mentioned in that uh, episode with Taylor Finney on (laughs) my podcast. And for David Foster Wallace, he had idolized this child prodigy, Tracy Austin. And reading her autobiography broke his heart because he realized that she was dumb. I don't like, I really don't mean this like offensively. It's just like the fastest way to explain. No, this is amazing. He brought up this great point that we treat our athletic idols as role models for all of life. And so Mm -hmm. if they're amazing on the playing field, we also expect them to be the most articulate, the smartest, have the best taste, etc. Whatever, we project all of our fantasies and illusions of greatness onto them for everything. Mm -hmm. And in reality, for some sports, maybe for all professional sports, it actually really benefits you if you're able to just turn your brain off Mm -hmm. and not have these other thoughts. David Foster Wallace is a very, very smart man who really loved tennis, and he said he wasn't that good at tennis, and he thinks it's partly because he was always overthinking it. Uh Which way is the ball coming? Oh my gosh, I'm not playing well enough. Whatever those thoughts may be, and that's something that I've struggled with a lot as an athlete, and having lived with professional athletes over the years, I've in some ways really envied their ability to just sit in front of the TV and recover. all day. They spend like the whole TV. afternoon exactly. recovering, and you're like, why can't I do this? 100%, and they don't overthink it. They get injured. They're just like, well, it's part of the job, mm-hmm. and in some ways, I really envied that, and in some ways, I've been so grateful that I'm not mm-hmm. like that, and so I think this is something also that maybe you're coming to terms with, where you are a really smart person with a lot of thoughts, and it's tough because you want to channel everything into athletics, but you are meant for more than that. Like, you are meant mm-hmm. to be a great athlete and to be great at other things. And so learning that balance, like I certainly haven't learned it. I'm a decade older than you and I still haven't learned it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think it's just like such a tough balance to strike. I have always at least looked up to the athletes most who I do feel like also really excel in these other areas of life. Also let these other sides of them shine through, whether they're a great doctor or a great writer, or mm-hmm. even if they just find a way to really make their running stand for something more than a result. It's hilarious. Like people keep joking, like, Grace, when you go back to France, you really need to find yourself a French beau. And I'm like, number one on my list of requirements for a boyfriend is like, must enjoy either reading or the crossword or like something else where, or reading the New York Times in paper format. But yeah, sometimes I do wonder, I'm like, I feel like I might be a better athlete if I could fully take advantage of the opportunity to be one of those quote unquote professional athletes where you go out and do your training and then you come back and you don't really do much in the afternoon and you're recovering and then you feel really great the next day. But I think to me, it just doesn't feel fulfilling. And like, I don't think any result will ever feel like enough satisfaction to make that worth it. Well, and that's the crux. I 100% would view living like that as a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And how much are you willing to sacrifice for what result? I think the key for a lot of athletes is they don't view it as a sacrifice. That's what Mm -hmm. they want to be doing. And, And then you take a step back and you're like, okay, I'm living my life. Do I want to be sacrificing my life? I only get to live once for this result that isn't going to mean enough to justify it. Because the reality is like, 
like you can't change the way your brain thinks. And I think it's a gift and I, I wouldn't want you to, you know, and that's mm-hmm. something that I've had such a hard time accepting in myself. Like, why am I like this? Why am I always overthinking everything? And you're like, you know what? I just got to roll with it. Like, uh-huh. how can I use this to my advantage rather than working against it? Because I mean, I think at the end of the day, for sure, there are benefits to being able to turn your mind off. But I also think about it. And I'm like, so yeah, we talked about all of the incredible things you've done as an athlete. But I also had other questions to ask you because the extent Mm. of what makes you interesting and what makes you accomplished doesn't end with athletics. Like you're also all of this other stuff outside of sport. And I think there are very few people who really can inspire people or inspire change just through their athletics. Like sure, maybe if you're Michael Jordan or like one of the most famous athletes of all time. But for most of us, it's like people aren't inspired by the fact that we won one race. They're inspired by the way that you live your life. Yeah. And what brings you joy too? you always have to come back to that because at the end of the day, like we're all doing our best and no one's going to remember like the details of our lives. Like we're not even going to remember what races Mm -hmm. we've won probably, but hopefully we'll remember like what brought us joy and like just living a fulfilled life. And I, unfortunately, I think part of the struggle of figuring out what that is, is literally part of it. (laughs) Yes. For better or for worse. Oh yeah. I think you're right. On a lighter note, I really love whatever this fuzzy blue oh, cape yeah. situation that you're wearing. Honestly, like, if we're talking about the Hot Mess Express, it is me 100% right now. No. Like, yeah, I have, like, this huge turtleneck on. I'm recording the audio on a different computer oh my from the Zoom <gasps> because I, like, recorded an episode last night with Cam, and I can't get it for the um. life of me to save. And so I was like, if I log out to record with Abby, I'm going to lose it. Mm. And so I was like trying to finagle all these different things and somehow ended up with this crazy situation (laughs) that looks so incredibly unprofessional. So yeah, you know, just me in my pajamas with a bunch of computers strewn about. Yes. But thank you really so much. I mean, this was great. And I'm not surprised because I knew when I reached out to you, I was like, oh, she agrees to this. It'll be a great conversation because I do love that you're just not super filtered. I feel like sometimes athletes can be like that where they're like afraid to say even the slightest controversial thing. And it's like, it's not like you said anything controversial today, but I feel like people get so paranoid that then it's just like, this is why podcasts turn into like, what's your favorite shoe? What do you eat before training? And you're like, Do people really like listening to that? It, it seems very unsubstantial to me. Not in, not unless you're Jim Wamsley. I'd like to know what he eats before training. But That's no one true. Gets, no one cares what I'm eating before training. But yeah, I mean, I, I totally feel you. And for better or for worse, I don't read uh, my non-disclosure contracts when I sign things. So who knows whether I stay within the rules or not, but whatever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, either way, I'm sure the three is still coming for the performance review. So it might not really matter. <laughs> it's okay. In that case, everything I told you I also told my manager so thank you Grayson you're just you're so wise beyond your years it's always such a treat to chat with you so thank you so much for inviting me on of course thank you talk to you soon talk to you soon Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. I wanted to take this opportunity to quickly mention a very cool experience that DinaFit is running with their Ultra Camp. The contest will be open until May 25th, and you'll have the opportunity to be one of eight athletes selected, 
with all expenses covered by DenaFit to attend the camp. You'll start in the new DenaFit Athlete Center and then run two stages of the Transalpine Run with the team. You'll get to interact with really, really, really great DenaFit team members and see some very beautiful sights. The camp is June 26th through July 1st. You can find information on my social media or on the DenaFit Instagram page to apply now. I also want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Inside Tracker. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash alpine start. One more time, that's insidetracker.com forward slash alpine start. Thank you all, and we'll talk to you next week on the Alpine Start podcast. Enjoy your spring! Thank you.